We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Welcome to Oklahoma Family Network's podcast called We Saved You a Seat. I'm your host, Tamara Crabtree, and today's guest is Cheryl Stepp. I know you are going to fall in love with Cheryl and the message that she has for us on creating resilience through trauma in ourselves and how we can help others find resilience through trauma as well. So much to digest in the next 40 minutes, so let us begin. I have a ton of questions. Um, <laughs> I'm just kind of excited to get to know you and your resources and and learn more about what you do. Okay. Well, uh, I, I mean, I, I can talk about trauma anytime. Um, <laughs> I'm a trauma nerd. That's what I call myself. My big bulk of my job when I was a little bit younger was working in the public school system in Oklahoma, in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and also in Red Rock, Oklahoma, at Frontier School, which is a pre-K through 12th grade. Um, in Stillwater, it was pre-K through fifth grade. And I was the school counselor. And I also, in Stillwater, well, both places actually, taught preventative classes. So routinely, um, either the classes came to me or I went to them and we talked about emotions. We talked about making friends. We talked about decision-making. I taught them about relaxation and and how to move from your angry part of your brain back to the thinking part of your brain and things like that. And specifically in Stillwater, we had a group, a team of teachers and principals that we really put things together in a way that we did not know then. We didn't never even heard the term trauma-informed or anything like that. But we really did, looking back, we had all those um, pieces in place. And when I left there several years ago, I went to Kansas City with my husband for his job. And I took a job with Trauma Smart, which is a nonprofit organization that still does great work across the country. And I learned all about adverse childhood experiences there. I learned about trauma in the brain, um, just reading so much um, information. And then I started training Head Starts and school systems um, across the country in what's called the ARC framework, which is attachment, regulation, and competency framework. And it's an evidence-based research by Kristen Kinnenberg and Margaret Blaustein. And what that really does is set up the environment so that you're creating safety, you're creating trusting relationships, and then you're building capacities in regulation in yourself and in others, which I can explain what that means in a little bit. You're really helping um, the students and the families and even the other staff members in your, your system understand their own emotions, how to shift and change those emotions and that energy that comes with them, how to express themselves. And then the competency piece is really rebuilding some neural networks that get lost, um, that don't get developed as well in children that have experienced a lot of trauma in their life. And so like working memory and flexible thinking and inhibitory control, getting started on task and not doing what you shouldn't do, and then rebuilding their positive self-identity. And so that's, that's this framework, this art framework. So when I left Trauma Smart, 
Um, I came back to Oklahoma and ironically at that point, they said, no, we don't do any remote work <laughs> a year before the pandemic. Um, but you can go do your own thing. You know all the research, you have all the research. So, you know, you can create what you want to create. So I created Creating Resilience and um, I started working across Oklahoma, just networking with people and luckily fell in with uh, Linda Minot, the Potts Family Foundation, and talked to her. And then we started collaborating on, um, she was already showing the movie Resilience, the Biology of Stress and the Science of Hope. I always get that mixed up in my head a little bit. And I started being on panels with her. And then together, we decided that what we should really do is bring in um, another training that is separate from mine called Near Science Training. Um, and so we brought that into the state and I helped coordinate that. And it's still ongoing, and it's a free community training about um, ACEs and the um, the study itself, and then how to create self-healing communities like geographic communities. So I kind of have these two hats going on, but I'm kind of stepping away a little bit from the near and really focusing more on my creating resilience right now, which is really stepping into organizations, businesses, school systems, and just really walking them through this understanding of how trauma impacts our brain and our body and our behaviors. And then what we can do with ourselves and with others to create this environment where everybody feels safe, um, where everybody feels belonging. And so then we can build up capabilities that just help everybody thrive. And I call it creating collective well-being because when we do it, we're not only helping ourselves, but we're helping other people also. It sounds like a lot of your work started with children and kind of working in the school system. And now you've kind of transitioned even more to the adult world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the same concepts apply to both. <laughs> Absolutely. And they apply to pre-K teachers and they apply to, I would even say Walmart executives, bank executives, any nonprofit, because what it really is, is it's teaching us to kind of keep a lens, I call it the trauma lens on all the time. And it, it shifts that, does that philosophical shift from what's wrong with you? If you see a behavior like that's inappropriate, instead of thinking what's wrong with you, what might've happened to you? Because all of our behaviors are a form of communication. And a lot of times the behaviors that we exhibit when we're in different parts of our brain, they're our survival mode. That's how we've adapted to our environments as we were growing up. And we hold on to that. And being able to see that and understand that, that when somebody is displaying something that you might think is inappropriate, instead of thinking of punishing them by putting them out of the meeting or putting them down or humiliating them instead, really trying to have this empathetic lens of, you know, I kind of wonder what happened to you. How can I help you through this distress that you're feeling right now? And it's just a great way to interact with all people all the time. Do you feel like a lot of people and most people, whether it be children or adults, have dealt with trauma in their life? And it's something, um, maybe kind of explain how some of those traumas that we may not think about as traumas may impact us as adults in our interactions. Right. Well, the, the ACEs study, it's Adverse Childhood Experiences Study has been replicated many, many thousands of times. And basically it comes down to this, that 60% of people have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. And those are, um, there's 
the original survey had 10 on them. So I'll tell you what those 10 were. And they were and five working within things that happened around you within your family. So it might've been any type of um, drug or substance abuse in the family. It might've been any type of violence within the family, domestic violence. It could be a caregiver that had a form of mental illness, some sort of separation or divorce with caregivers, and then some sort of incarceration or, or impact of the law. And then there are um, things that maybe should have happened to us, but we did not get in our life. Um, and that's physical and emotional neglect. And then the three that um, unfortunately happened to some people that we wish had not are physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. And so those original 10 ACEs is what really started this whole, um, this whole information about ACEs. Since then, we now know that um, there are a lot of community adversities and um, so living in areas of high poverty, um, poor transportation, poor schools, food, food scarcity, um, discrimination, things like that, that those adversities also kind of fuel this because what trauma comes down to is it's not the event itself. It's our experience and our interaction and, and our perception of what's going on. So I use a definition of trauma that is... Um, it's a, the physiological impact on our body that creates a felt sense of vulnerability or loss of control. And so you and I might be in the same experience. Like I told people, when you come back from, when we all came back from COVID, we might all be sitting in a room together and maybe we're not six feet apart for the first time and people don't have masks on. And I might be okay with that because I had nobody in my family impacted by it. Nobody got severely ill or anything, but I might be sitting next to somebody that had multiple deaths and even survived a horrendous illness themselves. So their experience of being in this room with people is going to be very different and can very much be traumatic to them um, where it may not be to me. So we're in the same experience, um, the same event, I'm sorry, but our experiences are different. So that's what creates that trauma. So the other piece to that that I like to explain to people is that we have different responses to stress and stress is anything that's unpredictable. So if you think about um, even, I, I wasn't stressed about getting on this call because I had no idea what we we're going to do, but some people would be like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to talk about, right? So it could be something as little as that as I'm about to get on this phone call and I don't know what this person's going to say to me to I don't have a job and I don't know what I'm going to do, or my house just burnt down and I don't know what I'm going to do. So any unpredictability, and again, COVID gave us a lot of that at the beginning, a lot of unpredictability. And what that does, that unpredictability builds a sense of loss of control in our own brains and minds. And so that leads to kind of this vulnerability, especially if it's a really prolonged um, loss of control and, and unpredictability. And so when we react to stress like that, we can have a positive reaction. So the positive reaction is that um, I get more creative. I um, start, you know, getting a to-do list. I, I, you know, I feel stressed, so I'm going to get something done. Right? That's positive stress, and we all need that. And then there's tolerable stress, which we all also need, where we kind of feel overwhelmed, but we have a support system in place. We have people we can turn to. Um, and we have resources and those resources could be physical resources, like we have pen and paper and computer, or it could be resources that we have knowledge or we know where to get that knowledge. So it becomes toxic and creates trauma when we don't have those supports and we don't have those resources. So somebody might hear, oh, one of the ACEs is divorce. Well, 
my parents got divorced, but I don't feel like I had any bad repercussions from that. Well, you probably had a support system and resources in place. So you might've had this adverse experience, but you also had positive experiences that balanced that out. And so that's what's really important is a lot of people hear ACEs and they hear kind of the negative things about it and it kind of feels overwhelming, but there's this balance out there. And that's where we really um, need to think about where are the source of the supports and the resources really needed. Um, I thought Jennifer Hayes Grito at OSU, I talk with her on and off in different things. And one thing she said to me that um, really stuck with me is ACEs are everywhere. We know that from the research all around the world, they're about consistent all around the world that these adverse childhood experiences occur. But what's not everywhere are the positive experiences. That's where um, you have these deserts <laughs> that don't have the sports and the resources that they need. And so how do we build that up in those areas so that everybody can find that balance between ACEs and positive experiences? So is that one of your goals maybe in, in your role as far as being able to teach people how to create some of those positive experiences for those around them? Um, that's exactly what it is because that's, that's why I came up with the idea of creating resilience because we're creating resilience in ourselves and in other people. And resilience is, you know, you'll never bounce back, right? You crumple up a piece of paper and you can straighten it out, but you can always see where it's been. And, and that's what, to me, in my brain, what resilience is, it's, it's getting growth um, through life and being able to thrive no matter what we've been through. And so, yes, the, the whole art framework supports the idea that um, we have to have these relationships in our lives, somebody that we can call and just say, hey, this is happening to me and either talk it through or maybe they physically come help you with finances or a ride or something like that. Building up those connections and then really understanding how our brain and our body work together um, and interact with the environment and interact with other people. And when we learn that, it gives us that sense of control. And so it decreases the idea that I'm vulnerable, that I'm, I can't, um, you know, I'm not worthy. I can't help myself. I can't help other people. It really inspires people to see that I am worthy. Um, I'm lovable. The world can be a safe place. There are people that I can trust. And so therefore I have a future. And that's, that's the whole idea is to kind of shift that thinking in people that really are overwhelmed with a lot of adversity that it takes one, one positive relationship with a, compare, a, a compassionate, capable adult that really changes their lives. So you talk to a lot of people, I, I have several colleagues that have eight, nine, 10 aces, and they'll say, you know, I can pick out the people that were my support people that were there for me that really helped me through this. So that's what makes it cool. Anybody can be that person. That is an incredible, incredible thought that you can be, make such an impact, even if you don't have training or you don't have, you know, the, the MSW or a therapy degree or any of that, you can be a positive experience in somebody else's life. Um, so what would be some of those positive experiences that maybe the lay person. Mm -hmm. um, what are some things that we can do just as the friendly neighbor or someone who cares about another person or wants to be there to support someone else? It's going to sound really basic. <laughs> One of the best things you can do is smile and wave. <laughs> and that sounds really silly. I was just even taking a walk and this man hollered at me from across the street. And he's like, I just want to tell you that every time your husband's walking, he gives us the biggest wave and the biggest smile. He's so genuine. 
And I said, yeah, he really, he really is. That's the type of person he is. But when you actually do that little tiny thing, um, which I'll get on beyond that, but when I smile and then you smile, it, it sends chemicals to our body that actually make us feel better. And I noticed the more we wave in our neighborhood, the more that neighbors are like, oh, that's them. We better get ready to wave. But just having those true, genuine interactions where you're staying present, you're listening. Um, I get into a lot of training about attunement, which is being able to actually um, say to somebody what they're, what they're feeling. So for example, we had a little um, toddler at my neighbor's pool a long time ago, and he was getting out of the pool because it started to rain and he didn't want to leave. And so he started to throw a little tantrum and his mom's like, we'll come back, we'll come back. It's going to be okay. She's trying to fix it, fix it, fix it. And I put on my little trauma hat and sat down and I, I looked at him and I said, you know what? I'm really sad too. I'm really upset because I don't want to get out of the pool. So it makes sense that you're really sad that you have to get out of this pool. And he just kind of looked at me and that's called validating. When you say it makes sense that you feel that way. And sometimes you can even do it with behaviors, like maybe they've thrown a block across the room or somebody's come in and slam the door and slam their books down on your desk. And, you know, you're like, wow, I can tell you're really angry right now. They'll usually tell you what makes them angry. And then just validating, well, it makes sense that you're angry about that. And then being able to say, what can I do to help? Would you like to take a walk? Um, a great thing to do is offer a drink of water because we have to regulate our breathing when we take a drink of water. And that helps us calm when we regulate our breathing. There's just all sorts of little things like that. But I think the validation is a big piece of it. And then just having the understanding, which we can go into now or we can go into another time, but having understanding of, of where that person is in their brain and that what they really need is probably either to feel safe or to feel connected at that moment. They're, they're not in a space where they can talk about what's going on when they're really upset about it. So that's why just validating it kind of doing some regulation, walking, talking, having something to drink. Um, I shouldn't say talking, but it's when you're walking <laughs> that you start talking because you're walking side by side. But anything to help regulate their breathing and their heart rate to kind of bring them down so they can get to the part of their brain where they can think and talk again. Wow. I actually am wondering, would you would you kind of talk to us a little bit about understanding where they might be in their brain and how you know, we might be able to just have conversations. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about my role with Oklahoma Family Network. So I work with families um, in the NICU. So my families and my experiences, um, I, you know, a, a family may have a 23, 24 weeker gestation baby and know they're going to be in the hospital for 130, 150 days. And so I get to be that support person as a family perspective. So not as a, not as a doctor, not as a nurse, I am just the family member that's going to walk with them as someone who's been there and experienced it. Um, as well as maybe families who um, deliver a term baby and then are rushed to the NICU to have a diagnosis. And so they're in um, a very, anytime a family walks into the NICU, there's, there's trauma that is there that they are experiencing. And so as I hear you share what you do, I'm just going, I want to sit through a class that you have because <laughs> everything I do is trying to assess where the individual is, you know, or, or understand that they are not in a place where they even want to talk to me, or they are, mm -hmm. they just need to know that I'm available or, you know, they just need to see that hey, I remember you text, or I'm thinking about you text. And so can you 
I probably shared too much about me and that's not at all my goal here, but would you kind of walk us through how me as someone who's not trained in that might be able to recognize how to, to support someone and kind of identify where they are in their brain? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I usually talk about three different parts of the brain and, and the first part I talk about is the brain stem, which is the first part that's developed when we're just developing in the womb. And that's, the very back of our skull. We're on a podcast. I can't show you with my head, but that's where your, you know, your head meets skull. And, and that's that's the part of the your brain sounds what controls every single thing in your body. So it's reacting to the environment around you all the time. So um, if it's cold outside, you'll shiver. Um, if you eat food, it's going to send out the enzymes to digest it. it. It's what makes our lungs breathe and our heartbeat and our eyes blink, everything, all of our movements. Um, that brainstem is just constantly interacting with the environment. And if it gets a signal from another part of the brain that we're going to talk about that it, there's danger or threat in the environment in some way, shape, or form, and can be just a felt sense of danger, it's going to send the signal. This is the part of the body that sends what we generally refer to as fight, flight, or freeze. And so that releases cortisol and adrenaline in our system. And it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to speed up our breathing and our heart rate and make our muscles tense so that we can fight or we can run. And in extreme cases, um, and it, with some people, it, it does the opposite. It decreases everything and it makes us kind of freeze. And if you've ever been around somebody in share terror, then they'll actually faint. It decreases your um, heart rate and breathing so much. So that's fight, flight, or freeze. And it it does that with good meaning. Uh, that's how we've survived as individuals. That's how we survived as species. So um, if you think about it, if there's a bear in the woods, right? Um, you, need, you need that system to come at you so that you can fight or run or you know, play dead and hope he just sniffs you and goes away. But that's, that's the survival part of the brain. That's what I call it. So that interacts really closely with the limbic system, which is between our two ears, but I call that our emotional brain because I don't like to use all these scientific terms. And in the emotional brain, there's three things that we really, I really talk about. And one is that that is where your emotions are housed. So if we put you in an MRI and I made you really joyful and happy, there are all these little neural connections and there would be lighting up, okay? That's your emotions. It also holds the space where all of our memories are held. So not just memories like the um, capitals of all the cities in the US, but our episodic memories, our experience memories. So if you've ever been in a car accident on a certain curve, when you come close to that certain curve, you remember, that's where I had that. And it ties those together with the senses from the environment that we were talking about from the brainstem. So for example, um, I show a video sometimes in my training about this, child abuse that happened in a home and it was just devastating and the police came and the parents were really hurting each other but there had been a fight and spaghetti had been thrown up against the wall and so I talk about how you know the smell of spaghetti might trigger that child two weeks two years from now and they may not even know why it's, they're being triggered because they're smelling the same smell and it's linking it to that memory, that episodic memory of that fight and with the emotion of fear. And what happens is if, if you get a link like there that has to do with fear or danger, this other little system in that mid part of the brain called the amygdala, and I call it the watchtower because it's constantly, like even now, it's scanning the environment all the time 
for anything that might be a threat or a danger. And it's linking it back to that episodic memory sometimes. And so like if you've ever been walking in the woods and you suddenly jump back and then you look down, it's just a stick. It's not a snake. That's this part of the brain working because it saw something and it's like, oh, and then you look down, and you're like, oh, no, 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 that's just a stick. But if it hadn't been, you, your midbrain, your emotional brain had just helped you survive. And so it's really important. It does go for good behavior, good emotions too. Um, so if you've ever, I tell people, if you've ever heard a song and suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, I remember the wedding I was at when I danced that, it, it does it both ways. So that's, the emotions are not just the negative, it's the positive too. So those two pieces work really closely together because if that watchtower senses danger, it sends the signal down to the brainstem to do fight, flight, or freeze. So those are your instinctive reactions that happen all the time. So the third part of the brain, the last part of the brain that starts to develop is our cortex. And I talk mainly about what's called the prefrontal cortex. It's, it's just above our eyes. And it doesn't start developing till age three to five. And they say it doesn't really stop really developing till mid to early to mid thirties. But I still, I think I still am gaining some work up there too. So <laughs> I mean, we're, we're gaining neurons and neural connections all the time. So what it does, the prefrontal cortex, that is where we can um, think and plan and look at consequences. It's where we have what's called inhibitory control or self-control where I don't do things, you know, I really shouldn't do, but I also get started. I have task initiation for things that I do and it's working memory so I can learn something in one place and apply it somewhere else. So the prefrontal cortex is where we want people when we're having discussions. Um, if they're if they have a problem, they bring a problem to us, and we want to be able to solve that problem. That's where we want them to be. And I call it say that that's that's our thinking brain, and that's where we can thoughtfully respond to what's going on around us rather than instinctively react. But here's the big kicker, and this is what will really hit home with you: is if we have a heightened emotion, positive or negative heightened emotion in our midbrain or that fight, flight, or freeze has been triggered out. The thinking part of the brain, that prefrontal cortex, actually goes what they say kind of offline, like your neural connections are not firing like they should. So if you stop to think about it, it kind of makes sense. If you've ever been really angry with somebody and you said something and then later like, can't believe I said that, what was I thinking? And you can say, well, you weren't really thinking at that moment, right? You're just reacting at that moment. And so it's just really important to keep that in mind. And, and the way that we get people from that, the back part of the brain, either the survival or the uh, midbrain is, is to create safety. If they're in the survival brain, right, they really need safety. And if they're in that midbrain, that emotional brain, what they really need is connection either with each other or with themselves so that then they can come back up into that thinking brain. And if we had my slides, we'd twist the brain and we'd overlay a car on it. And in the trunk of that car, that would be where the brainstem is. And if you think of it this way, if somebody was trying to stuff you into the trunk of a car, right, you would fight, you would try to run, or you might just say, whatever, you know, I'll get in, you know, you kind of the freeze mode. And what's more important is when they shut the lid, you have no control where that car is going. You're simply instinctively reacting. So if they turn right really hard, you're going to fall to the left. If they slam on the brakes, you're going to roll forward, right? You're only able to react to what's going on around you.
And what you really need when you're in the trunk is you need to get out. So you need safety. So that's a good thing to remember. I mean, you look at the image of a car and the trunk and this bright red spot in the middle of it, and that's your survival brain. And when that lid shuts, you want safety. Okay. So the back seat is that emotional part of our brain. And so sometimes we're in a positive place with that. So after a long week, work week, we might sit on the back porch with the tea or whatever, and just kind of relax and hang out and not think about the laundry we have to do or what's on our to-do list on Monday. And that's kind of like sitting in the back seat of a car and somebody else is driving. You don't really care where they're going. You're looking out the window. You're just hanging out. Um, but it can also be that negative tougher emotions. So like anxiety or grief or worry. And lots of times when we have that, we try to backseat drive, right? We try to tell that car where to go. And we might have some influence over where that car goes, but we don't have ultimate control. We're still really reacting. And when we're there, that's where I said the need is connection. So we need to either be able to connect with ourselves, like you're allowing them to do by just sitting and crying. It's allowing them to connect to that emotion. And you're also providing a place for them to connect to other people. Just being in that space with them and allowing them to do that has created a bond and a connection. So that's building connection. The front seat is like if you were driving that car, right? And so you're able to um think things through and plan and organize so i might have to get off in five exits and there's lots of traffic stuff so to plan how i'm going to do that and that person flipped me a gesture i'm not going to give it back to them that inhibitory control right but you're planning and you're thoughtfully responding to everything that you're doing and you're in total control of that car and when you're doing that what you're doing in life is you're finding meaning and that's the need in the front seat of the car is to find meaning and so when you think of it that way we can we all instinctively jump from the front seat to the trunk, right? That's our, we talked about that. That's our survival. We have to do that and we can go to the back seat. The majority of people in the world um, cannot go from the trunk to the front seat. They kind of have to crawl through the back seat. And that's because they need to feel safety first. And once they feel safety, then they can be in a space where they can connect with other people or they can connect with themselves. And they have to meet those two things before they can get in that front seat. Now, first responders, you probably being in my mind a first responder, I do believe teachers are first responders. There are some people that have to be in a threatening situation and yet still be able to be in their front seat, right? That military, police, emergency workers, things like that. They might be in very threatening situations. However, I will tell you that they run into trouble if they don't, when that situation is over, if they don't go back and experience that back seat and get reconnected with themselves and other people, that's when you develop post-traumatic stress disorder because they're constantly living in this threatening and, and just trying to function, function, function. They've always got to come back and get that connection built back up again. You're kind of talking about someone that is in control during a crisis, but at the same time, they still need to go back and kind of process mm -hmm. all of the emotions that they maybe didn't feel immediately in order to continue on to, to serve the community as, mm -hmm. at best. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Very much so. I had a really good friend that I explained it to her and her sister who had a child that had a uh, chronic illness and, 
And I ex explained it to them so she would understand where she was while she was dealing with all this trauma that was going on with her child getting more and more ill. And her, it was my friend's sister that I explained that to. And then several months later, my friend was very quickly, unexpectedly diagnosed with stage four cancer. And she told me that when her doctor told her, we've detected this very large stage four cancer in your body. She said she looked at the doctor and she felt the immediate, right? She felt her heart kind of stop and her breathing. And she looked at the doctor and she said, you just gave me information. I know you want to talk to me some more, but I know right now that I'm not in the place in my brain where I'm going to hear or understand what you're saying. If you could just give me a few minutes to kind of absorb that information before we go on. And she said she wanted to say, I'm in my trunk. I'm in my trunk and you can't talk to me from the front seat when I'm in the trunk. So you need to give me a little bit of time so that I can breathe so that maybe I can get myself into that back seat so I can hear you. And I was like, that was just such a beautiful analogy of it, of how like, as we go in and out of life, if we just think about where am I in the car? And if I'm slipping into that trunk, do I know some regulation techniques, breathing, coming into the moment, um, movement, something that will get me into that back seat so I can eventually get into my front seat. And that's what all my training is about, is how do we understand that about ourselves? How do we respond to other people depending on where they are in the car in their brain? And then also teaching that to other people so that they can then also feel that sense of control when their heart starts beating or whatever. How do I, do I know the skills? Do I have the resources to feel calm again? And that gives you a huge sense of control in your life. So yeah, you have a big job then trying <laughs> to make sure that, that our people understand themselves as well as others in, that they're working with and in the community. So that's, that is huge. So I guess, is your role primarily within large groups? Do you do one-on-one? -on -one? Tell me a little bit about how you do your trainings. Yeah, it's large. It's large group. What I've done historically is worked with either schools or agencies. I have like a human services agency in Michigan that I work with, but they were part of the Head Start that I originally worked with there. And I, I bring in the information. Um, it, it can go up to like almost 20 hours of training to get really interactive. Um, I really do believe that we've just briefly talked about this, but to really understand it, it I walk you through not like therapeutic experiences, but experiences of, you know, let's think about this and here's a scenario and where is this person in their car and where are you in the car when you hear this and, you know, really try to get people to understand it, uh, get a better working knowledge of it. Cause I feel like there's knowledge and then there's practicing that knowledge. And so the training can really take a deep dive that way. I've done as short as, you know, hour long things for conferences and things like that. Um, but to work with agencies and really teach their staff um, how to interact with each other, how to interact with whoever their clients or students are. Um, that's really what I like to do to come in and do that. I do have a website called creatingresilience.org and it lists my training topics and there's a blogs and videos page. I haven't written a blog in a really long time. I got really busy, um, but I post my blogs on what's called Paces Connection which stands for positive ad and adverse childhood experiences. 
connection.com. So you might've heard of them. That's a worldwide organization and they pull um, articles from like Wall Street Journal and things like that. But I've written articles for them that they highlighted on there. Um, a lot about what it means to be trauma-informed um, because as an agency, I think sometimes we say, oh, I'm trauma-informed, but in fact, really, maybe you, you're trauma-aware. You know that trauma exists, but you're not really, you don't really know how to respond to it correctly um, or put it in a whole big practice. So I wrote write about that. And on the bottom of that page, the blogs and videos page, there's three videos that I created. It's kind of funny. Um, in, in May of COVID, like COVID happened in March. And I was like, we have to get ready for when they drop all this and we all come back together because we're all going to be like, in the backseat of our brain and everybody's going to be mean with each other. And, and yeah, that kind of came true. I mean, you think about the fights on the airplanes and all this unrest and just battling in our communities, we're all, I think, still a little bit in the backseat of our brains as a community, as a society. And so I did a three-part series. It doesn't get into the brain as a car, but it explains the brain and a little bit more of um, the connection piece, like how do we connect with ourselves through breathing and movement and things like that. So those videos are out there if people want to watch those. And see I was going to say, are those videos that are available to just anybody in the community mm -hmm. as far yeah. as that goes? Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. And then I have a few snippets of training that I did. Um, everything's pre and post COVID, right? Pre COVID. Um, when I was at OSU working with some professors at OSU with this training. And so we just, I took a few snippets of that so that people could see me. They're not great video quality, but you can see me teaching and, and how it occurs. So, and the good thing is there's a lot, a lot of grant money out there now for trauma training. Um, the vice president of the United States came from California, which is one of the states that really initiated this whole movement with ACEs and becoming trauma-informed. And so they've really, and so is Delaware. Um, and so they've pushed through a lot of money um, through ARPA funds and other things to, to support grants and stuff that would support training entire agency. So yeah. I love it. I love it. This is so fantastic. Well, really quick, why don't you give us a phone number or an email address um, that someone might be able that would want to reach out uh, and, and visit with you? Okay. Yeah. It's um, C, my initials, C step, S T E P, and then a dot and C R, that's for creating resilience, but C R at gmail.com. So C step.cr at gmail.com. And then also on the my website, it's like on every page of my website is my phone number and my email address. Perfect. Thank you so much for this conversation. There's not an age that we couldn't use the techniques and, and the skills that yes. you would be teaching. Absolutely. Yeah. Because when I first started working with Trauma Smart, we taught at pre-Ks, it was zero through five years old. So even with infants, I mean, you can just mirror the expression and it's, I shouldn't do this, but I do. Um, <laughs> I might be in Walmart or something and see a kid that's, you know, mad and I'll just mirror that back to them and they'll always stop like, oh my gosh, somebody saw that. Somebody saw that I was looking like that. It's really kind of, you really shouldn't do that. But um, <laughs> it's kind of funny because even with young children and infants, you, you very much can validate emotions and verbally and physically and very much teach regulation and co-regulate with them and do things with them. So, oh my goodness. Well, 
this has been beautiful. This has been fantastic. And um, I know here we are almost you know, an hour into our conversation and I feel like we just got started, but thank you so much for your time today. This is, this was fantastic. And I appreciate everything that you do for everyone. So thank you. Thanks for the opportunities. I love talking with people that have lived experience and we can apply it to what they're doing. So. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271 5072.